Hi, I'm Monica Wesley for The Sugar Science. I have the distinct pleasure with speaking with Madina Makmutova. She's actually affiliated with the Division of Endocrinology, the Diabetes and Metabolism Department of Medicine at the University of Medicine in Miami, Florida. Welcome, Medina. Good afternoon or good morning, Monica. Thank you very much for having me here today. Well, thank you for joining us. I wondered if you might want to talk a little bit about you know, what you're doing over there at uh, University of Miami, and how did you become scientifically interested in type 1 diabetes? Sure. So I work in the laboratory of Dr. Alejandro Caicedo, and this laboratory became, I guess, famous and in the field of neuroscience or innervation yes. of the endocrine pancreas. And Dr. Caicedo actually has been trained as the sensory neurobiologist, which strengthens his uh, knowledge in the neuroscience uh, aspect of an um, endocrine innervation. And I personally think that the research I'm involved in is not directly linked to type 1 diabetes. And as Dr. Caicedo likes to stress the idea that uh, we study normal physiology. And it is the normal physiology which sets basis for understanding of pathology. Yes. And surprisingly, in many aspects of endocrine pancreas biology, and especially in innervation, we are still lacking principal understanding of many physiological and sometimes even anatomical aspects. And well said. Yeah, and in general, I am fascinated by the complexity of physiology and the neuroendocrine regulation of metabolic functions and homeostatic maintenance. So I wouldn't say that particularly my research is linked to type 1 diabetes, but it can definitely one day might have an impact um, in, the, in this field. Well, you guys are laying the um, groundwork for, for thorough understanding of the innervation of the endocrine pancreas, which... I think we'll have huge purchase on how those in the T1D world sort of approach it. So I think it's, it, the work you're doing is phenomenal. Thank you. And so how did you first get interested in studying the pancreas? And what, what drew you to this, this organ, this physiological state? I mean, it's pretty complex. Well, I think as I started, I joined Dr. Caicedo's lab as a graduate student. And uh, in the grad school, many of us don't really know what we want to do and what is out there. So I think a big part of it is a chance and the interaction with a mentor, uh, which is very important for the grad student. And I think it worked out really nicely. And this lab gave me the opportunity to advance and to advance my potential with like physiological approaches. Because nowadays with all the molecular biology, there are actually not that many physiology labs uh, that do like electrophysiology or calcium imaging. And um, that was actually very interesting. And I didn't learn this in college before, and we rarely, as students, get a chance to get hands-on experience with physiology. So we don't really get exposed to it a lot. And in this lab, I actually found that I can do it and that it's actually very interesting and exciting. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's really, it is, that, that's an important point that you brought up, that maybe some of these fields have been a little bit eclipsed by some of the advances in molecular biology and genetics and sort of the foray uh, forward. But it's important to recognize, uh, as it's kind of your, your paper really points out, that, that there's a lot still to be learned about the actual landscape of the organ and it's, it's, it's the way it uh, interacts in homeostasis and the physiology of it. So yeah, excellent point. 
How about, um, let's talk a little bit about your paper. The paper came out in Gastroenterology, October 26, Pancreatic Beta Cells Communicate with Vagal Sensory Nerves. And I notice uh, Alejandro is on there as well. And you're the first author, so congratulations. Uh, what can you tell, let's talk through the paper. Yeah, sure. Do you want me to go through figure by figure or the general idea of what we show? And um... I think let's first do the idea of what you show. Okay. And that paper, our main point that we show is that pancreatic beta cells communicate with uh, vagal sensory neurons. And we show that probably this communication happens uh, via serotonin signaling through serotonin receptor 3. And these vagal sensory fibers from the pancreas, they terminate in the commissural nucleus of the solitary tract, uh, bringing information to the brain. So we don't really know what the physiological importance of this communication is and what the physiological role is, but hopefully in the future uh, we can study it more. And perhaps it starts the, we can start the conversation that vagal nerve manipulation, so either activation or blockade, can actually have an effect on organ physiology. Yeah. And also, I would just like to, uh, you know, sort of reference the fact that within this, you know, vagal innervation, we've got afferents and efferents. Yeah. And, you know, from the, what, what kind of work has been done, at, to your knowledge, in terms of tracing the uh, afferent and efferent pathways back and forth, I guess, uh, the, the, through the neuronal, neuronal innervation. I mean, how is the liver involved? Is it, are there, you know, are there offshoots coming from the brain to the, is there a stopping point at the liver and then, and then is it continuing on to the, the, um, the endocrine pancreas or, or what's the anatomy? Have people figured that out yet? Yeah, so the, um, all the tracing studies were, the field of tracing of vagal innervation was kind of popular in the last century, uh, kind of like um, in 70s, 80s, um, yeah. and that was kind of completely abandoned. And at that time, there was a lot of work done for both anterograde and retrograde. And it's, those are very difficult studies because you need to take into consideration the leakage, the type of tracer that is being used. And at that time, tracers were not that specific. So it has to, had to be a very precise surgical technique and the injections had to be very precise. But many papers show retrograde tracing from the pancreas to the spinal cord, to the dorsal root ganglia and to the nodus ganglia. But there is a lot of skepticism around it because when you introduce a tracer into the pancreas, it can easily leak into the surrounding tissue. So it's very difficult to determine what is actually the contribution that comes from the pancreas and what is the nonspecific uh, tracing. Yeah. So, um, but there is a lot of work in, for uh, retrograde tracing. For anterograde tracing from the nodus ganglion to the pancreas, there is one paper, and it actually shows that the um, nodus ganglion preferentially targets the pancreatic uh, endocrine islets and not uh, the surrounding exocrine tissue. And for, in terms of uh, liver, I actually am not really familiar with the liver. I, I, I cannot really speak, speak about that. Um, but um, vagus is, is, is a very heterogeneous nerve. And there is a lot of research going on now um, looking at the vagal innervation of lungs, cardiovascular system, gastrointestinal tract. And the work uh, by the um, Stefan Liberlis and his lab um, advocates for the um, 
single line coding that it is mm -hmm. one neuron one organ mm -hmm. however it's very debatable and it's difficult even with tracing studies it is very difficult to um delineate if you if, you, if the projection is coming from a single neuron or if it is, there is some sort of convergence. From the uh, RNA sequencing studies, it seems to be that there is, that there, it could be a, a single line code because the, there are certain neuronal populations like GLP-1R neurons that tend to innervate stomach and there are other neuron, uh, neuronal populations that innervate lungs and not intestines. Like, but um, the recent study of nodus ganglion sequencing by Kupari, I believe, that came mm -hmm. out last year, they showed that there are, I think, 12 or 14 different subpopulations. So, and considering the amount of visceral organs, most likely this just 12 populations cannot just fulfill all the, it cannot be just one population per one organ. There should yeah, there must be just... some level of convergence. Yeah. So, it's a mixture between. I'm not sure if I'm if I. No, answer. that's uh, no. It's totally that's great. It is it is curious too because I was I was curious about this because I was looking back in the literature and it did I saw a bunch of these studies these labeling studies retrograde labeling and it was sort of like in the past. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's kind of like do we have new tools now that we could approach this again and really finally um, identify? I mean, we have the you know, the RNA labeling, but I mean, I don't know in terms of the, the if, if the retrograde labeling and all that stuff has, if those tools have advanced. They have with the viral techniques, um, definitely there is advancement. And there are uh, some studies that show tracing with rabies virus, mm. uh, where they specifically express part of the rabies virus in, a, um, in the cell type of interest. And then they look how this cell type of interest, if it connects to the neuron and what projections are. I know this type of tracing was used by Dr. Bohorkis by uh, looking at the connection of enteroendocrine cells in the colon mm -hmm. uh, with the vagal afferents, and they were actually able to show the direct synapse. Um, and we were considering this option for tracing uh, from the beta cells, but uh, we haven't used it in this particular study in gastroenterology. We used more conventional tracing approach with uh, adeno-associated viruses introduced into the pancreas. But um, in our case, we were um, really, um, we put a lot of effort into um, optimizing the surgical approach and minimizing the leakage. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, trying and, to improve the specificity. Yeah. And, and you can talk, can you talk a little bit about you were using living pancreatic slices, right? Yeah, um, so living pancreatic slices becomes a very common tool for studying different um, cell types and um, endocrine pancreas and even now in exocrine field as well. Um, and uh, in our study, it was the first time uh, using uh, slices for imaging neurons. So, um, and um, I guess it, it was pretty challenging because first of all, we had to find the right um, animal model to visualize uh, small neurons because even if you can see um, a large uh, soma of a neuron, uh, we not always can visualize small, fine axonal terminals. Yeah. And uh, we tested several mouse models, and we, even though we, we could see uh, neurons in the ganglia, we couldn't see projections in the periphery, probably because of the uh, limited transport of the uh, tracer. Mm 
or, or I mean, of the fluorescent reporter. And um, there, we, at the end, used the knocking mouse model, which was uh, PERT GCAMP3. And also, we had to use GCAMP3 instead of GCAMP6 because the baseline fluorescence is much brighter in GCAMP3. So it was easier to find and localize those um, axonal terminals. And um, another problem of imaging um, innovation in the uh, slides is that um, we kind of like, we cut off a projection from its uh, cell body. And uh, those neuronal terminals, they uh, usually are unmyelinated and they're not long-lived. So once we cut the slice, we have a very short amount of time to um, get any responses. And usually- How long is the window? Um, usually we were not getting any responses 40 minutes after uh, cutting. Oh, so that's so it's, it's yeah. pretty sh short, yeah, and um, even, and we also, we couldn't test um, a wide range of stimuli because they kind of, they exhaust. Uh, if you test a few stimuli, they start, they stop responding shortly after. So it's not a straightforward forward approach, but um, it was very useful to see the peripheral conduction mechanism because when we look at the uh, recordings and the SOMA, we don't really know what is happening in the periphery, if it is a direct effect or not. So uh, slices was a very useful technique to prove our point of serotonergic conduction directly in the eyelid. Yeah. And so let me ask you this too. This is um, I, the cytoarchitecture, obviously, of the mouse is a little bit different in terms of uh, the eyelids uh, as compared to humans. So how does the innervation compare? Is it you know, is it uh, also different from uh, so human? For the sensory innervation, uh, to my knowledge, there actually is no studies of sensory innervation in the human. Uh, because, and we, we try to stain human tissue for sensory markers. And um, it's, um, it is very, um, actually, no, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong here. So there was a paper by uh, Tung and Michael German where they look at uh, substance P oh, yeah. and uh, um, and cholinergic and uh, sympathetic markers in 3D doing reconstruction. Um, that is true. Uh, but there was no, I mean, there is not significant, um, like, there is no knowledge in terms of the postsynaptic targets and inside the eyelid sensory fibers, they are, first of all, there is a, a great heterogeneity among different eyelids. So not all eyelids are equally innervated. And I think the same applies to human and to, to more extent, it's more difficult to find sensory neurons in the human tissue yeah. uh, because they're just more sparse, uh, they degrade much faster, and a lot depends on the preservance of the tissue. If the tissue was well um, perfused, uh, and uh, if the sample was well preserved. So um, yeah, I had that same conversation that uh, yesterday with uh, Jacob Hexter Sorensen. He was saying that the tissue, when you get the human tissue, it's just all, you know, so heterogene heterogeneous because um exactly what you said there's been different fixing processes the harvest uh, you know times and everything is it can be very different mm -hmm. so we, we cannot really say uh comment on the differences between human and mouse sensory innervation yet i think uh but in the mouse we know that sensory innervation kind of goes to the periphery of the eyelid and in the human um it's uh, Sometimes it's in the periphery, sometimes it's in exocrine tissue. So it's, it's difficult to say the, the site architecture of sensory innovation in the human eyelid. I cannot comment on that. More work to be done. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, one thing that's kind of 
cool is I, I did um, interview uh, Jacob Hector Sorensen. He is at Goobra now. He does some incredible um, microscopy of um, eyelids. And it was so interesting. He shared with us yesterday, and you, you'll be able to see it once we publish it too, and everyone will, um, that it looked as if the innervation of the eyelids was really kind of just innervating almost like one um, of the beta cells, like almost like a sentinel cell. It's curious. It was really interesting. Like, like one was getting innervated, not the whole eyelid. Yeah. Um, so. It's very localized. And sometimes uh, we find some eyelids with um, large neuroinsular complexes where we can see um, uh, cell bodies of neurons. And uh, some of those uh, neurons, most of them are cholinergic, but some of them also express um, substance P and CGRP sensory markers. And uh, there is some idea that maybe there is um, sensory, intrinsic sensory innervation inside the pancreas. Yeah. But it's very difficult to, at the level of the pancreas, it's difficult to uncouple different um, pathways, um, like spinal versus vagal versus intrinsic. So it's, we, we're just um, going with the markers. Yes. I mean, it's just, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. So it's time to open up the, the physiological um, box again, I think, to, to look more closely. But it was kind of curious, and we discussed it on the, um, on the interview. It's almost like, hmm, could there be sort of a pacemaker set up here? I don't know. We'll see. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk a little more about the, um, you know, was this surprising to you guys? Um, your findings in the paper? Um, there were a few surprising things as uh, we were doing experiments. Um, the first surprising thing was that when we started imaging nodus ganglion, and our approach uh, is a little bit different from uh, what has been published by the um, group at Harvard, the Liberalists. So um, they were the first ones to establish uh, the surgery for nodus ganglion imaging. And um, I was really driven by that research. And uh, their approach, however, um, involved cutting of the branch that goes to the brain. So they would kind of lift up the, vag lift up the vagus nerve um, and place the nodus ganglion um, like on an elevated platform, but the branch that goes from the nodus ganglion to the brain was uh, cut. And in their recordings, if you look up the videos, um, they had really beautiful responses to stimuli in the viscera, but there was not, no spontaneous activity. And mm -hmm. I expected to see something like that in my preparations. And um, I tried their approach first, and then I moved on to um, a different approach where we don't cut anything. We just leave the ganglion intact. And uh, when I was um, actually getting my first recordings, I was fascinated because there is so much spontaneous activity. It's, it's flashing like a Christmas tree. And it, it, it tells that even though we don't really sense this, we don't perceive this information consciously, there is a lot of information continuously flowing from the visceral organs to the brain. Oh, yeah. That was the first surprise. And then the second big surprise was that when we started to perform stimulation of the pancreas, uh, I was trying to stimulate it mechanically and chemically. And I expected that when we inf inflate and distend pancreas uh, mechanically, I expected to see a strong response to that. And that was the second uh, surprise that there was almost no response to mechanical huh. distension. And uh, this kind of like, it makes sense because pancreas physiologically does not undergo any mechanical 
distension or there, there is there is no mechanical disturbance to the pancreas and normal physiology. And um, it indicates that vagal sensory fibers are not mechanosensitive, at least in the pancreas. And um, it was actually confirmed in another paper that I found. I'm sorry, I'm bad with names, but it's, um, no. there, was, there was a report uh, showing that uh, vagal sen sensory neurons are preferentially chemosensitive um, with uh, small exceptions. And um, when we started infusing different chemical stimuli into the um, pancreas, either applying them topically or through the uh, duct, uh, we uh, obtained very strong responses to chemical stimulation. And again, this, inf this is kind of uh, interesting in terms of physiology because when we think about pathological conditions such as pancreatitis or uh, pancreatic cancer, um, those conditions are perceived as very painful by, pati by patients. Yes. And in the opposite applies to type uh, to diabetes and um, insulinomas, which are not painful at all. So it, this indicates, and also the fact that vagal nerves preferentially target endocrine pancreas suggests that most likely this um, the mod sensory modality of the vagus in the islets is more of a homeostatic nature and not mechanosensation or nociception. It's it's tuned to maintain the like the homeostatic parameters so thermostat it's sort of a, a a nested thermostat deep within the abdominal cavity mm -hmm. um thermostat for sure for glyce um for glucose Glyco. yeah glycostat so you know in terms of um next steps after this now what i'm sure you guys have some things that are proprietary but what what what's next what are you going to do next um, so we, uh, of course, are very interested uh, to um, look what, um, to, to find out what is the physiological relevance um, of this pathway. So we want to try to manipulate uh, these nerves and we want to see the connections in the brain. So we're trying to establish if, um, to find out which types of neurons get activated by um, uh, stimulation of beta cells. Um, and um, also look at the uh, peripheral transduction mechanisms more closely and the interaction of different uh, innervation types at the level of the pancreas. Yeah, and, and I just want to do a shout out. I've been talking a lot about this because it's fascinating to me, but Philippe Blanco and others, uh, he's down at Cote d'Azur and Nice in uh, November 2019, just a year ago, and, and had a paper in Nature Biotechnology. Um, one of the authors was uh, Arun Sridhar at Galvani Bioelectrics. And they were talking about, well, their paper basically was entitled Pancreatic Nerve Electrostimulation Inhibits Recent Onset Diabetes. So they like, you know, they use this uh, stimulation and, and they were able to inhibit the recent onset autoimmune diabetes in the mouse. The follow-up follow paper is, uh, came out in August 26 of this year in... Um, you know, uh, science advances, immunology, basically interference with the pancreatic sympathetic signaling halts the onset of diabetes in mice. And that was Matthias uh, von Herreth and others. So they, so both of these um, groups now have, have started to play with the uh, interfe interfering with the sympathetic uh, signaling. This is, um, you know, there's a set point medical that actually does this in a, in the clinical space. They um, have these stimulators on the vagal nerve and decrease inflammation in RA and, and Crohn's. And I just wondered what your thoughts are on, uh, if you have any on, on that particular, um, you know, approach. 
Yeah, uh, so for actually, I, I'm familiar with the paper of, uh, by Philippe Blanco, and we actually wrote um, the preview of their paper for cell metabolism, cool. uh, like a little commentary. Uh, and I think uh, that study is really very, very interesting. Um, so uh, the idea that uh, they had is uh, to place a small electrode on the nerve that has a sympathetic phenotype. I wouldn't call this nerve uh, precisely sympathetic. We don't really know, but it was okay. adrenergic nerve. So okay. they found this nerve in the pancreas, and uh, by placing a cap, they were able to um, activate um, um, the um, lymph nodes. And this activation of lymph nodes kind of like promoted retention of immune cells inside the lymph node um, and prevented inf immune cell infiltration in the um, islet. This is absolutely fascinating. And they were able to kind of like tune the neuronal stimulation to be specific uh, for targeting just the lymph nodes. Um, the, uh, what is not clear to me is the surgical approach because that mm -hmm. remains a question. So again, uh, the uh, question of specificity and how to find that magical nerve um, that can be targeted that precisely. So um, uh, in the paper, there wasn't sufficient detail to really replicate the surgical approach, uh, but I'm sure it's just a matter of uh, practice training and maybe um, the scientific outreach for them to actually show how it can be done. And the um, outline of human anatomy is also necessary to really understand the uh, innervation of lymph nodes in the pancreas. Yeah, and then you know the follow paper. So in, with Matthias uh, von Harris' paper, it is curious that you know basically he's talking about you know interfering with the, with the sympathetic uh, signaling and then really impacting the islet macrophages. So I mean, just right out of the paper, it's like islet macrophages could constitute a pivotal neuroimmune signaling relay and could be a target for future interventions in T1D. So it's like you know the by you know by by messing with the sympathetic signaling mm -hmm. is sort of tuning or changing the impact that the macrophages have and it's kind of funny because i we did a little experiment um a few years ago uh like this and um it's interesting i cannot wait to see the next paper that comes out of here yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting that by modulating so those um peripheral um uh, autonomic nervous systems, they seem to have both parasympathetic and sympathetic. They seem to have very strong anti-inflammatory um, effect mm -hmm. in the periphery. Uh, and it's, it, it, it is interesting that just by placing the electrode, you uh, can actually visualize this anti-inflammatory effect despite the strong physiological effect. So, in, because, I mean, the, the canonical role of sympathetic and parasympathetic is the uh, flight and flight and rest and digest responses. So you would expect that by stimulating those nerves, you primarily would induce the physiological response. And then you start seeing those anti-inflammatory effects, which is, to me, is really, really interesting. But I think uh, we are really lacking the um, understanding of the um, temporal resolution for neuronal signaling, like if, um, and all the elect electrophysiological properties, because you can really target innervation by adjusting certain, um, uh, by, by fine tuning the um, rate of your stimulation, because there could be a, a difference in the, in the, in, in the firing frequency that yeah. would code a certain type of stimulus versus the other one. Like, I, I don't really understand how a single, by stimulating a single nerve, you can achieve one um, result 
versus uh, the physiological result, this anti-inflammatory, how you can couple the anti-inflammatory and physiological um, like rest and digest response or flight. Yeah, it, need, it, it needs a lot more work. I mean, it's a very exciting place though. I mean, um, to do that work. And I mean, I don't know, are, is your lab or, or affiliated labs down uh, at University of Miami uh, looking for postdocs or graduate students? Because, boy, it seems like such an exciting place to be and do the work. It is an exciting place. And I think our division of endocrinology is growing and expanding. And we do have really um, interesting topics. Um, uh, but I'm definitely not in a position to speak <laughs> for, uh, for the division or like... Um, yeah, yeah. No, no, of course. But <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just sort of uh, getting people excited about University of Miami because I do think so much great work is going on there um, in type 1 diabetes. And uh, it's a great place to be. I mean, it's very, it's very, it's, it seems to be very um, interdisciplinary and collaborative. Uh, from the people I've spoken to there. So it just seems uh, like a lot's going on that's excellent. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, um, in terms of, um, you know, what do you think the challenges are that have to be overcome to expedite research in, um, in your space, I guess? I mean, if you wanted to just sort of hypothesize in terms of, dissecting type 1 diabetes, what kind of experiments would need to be done in, in, in your space? Um, well, I, I think that a lot of research in endocrinology is focused on um, kind of like on isolated islets or on isolated cell type and uh, paracrine effects. But in reality, um, uh, the diabetes uh, condition is the it's a metabolic disease which involves the whole body and uh we definitely need to advance um in um in terms of like holistic physiological work uh in vivo and it is very difficult to do and especially with uh knowing the differences between animal human and mouse and but now there is a lot of work uh, work like being done in slices which is very exciting so slices are a little bit step um, up from the isolated islets, at least you preserve some sort of microenvironment, of pancreatic microenvironment. But if we can expand it and scale it up further by having like um, an, a, the organ level or um, maybe a, a different engineering approaches for um, organs on the chip or something mimicking yeah. the network where you can actually have uh, different um, different players, vasculature, innervation, um, those are very important in the progression of, um, in, in general, in physiology and in pathology. Yeah, because this is such a, uh, you know, all-encompassing, it does seem the vasculature, you know, the, um, uh, the innervation and the cellular uh, architecture are, are very much all changing in type 1 diabetes. So we have to appreciate that um, as, as a unit. And that's, uh, you know, it's almost like you have to build a, a layered understanding of the organ. And so hopefully, um, those pieces will come together as, um, as, as things move forward in the field. Um, I wanted to say, you know, uh, how do you, you know, just in terms of our pandemic and situation in the laboratory, uh, is your laboratory moving ahead? And how do you think, you know, what do you, 
what can you say to young uh, researchers who are dealing with the challenges of the of COVID and the current constraints? Uh, you know, is there anything you'd like to share with them? Well, I think um, in some way we are lucky uh, because in science we have flexibility of um, being at home and doing some experiments uh, in the lab when needed. So it's, we, we are flexible. We are not on a fixed schedule and we can alternate. We can like work different hours and adjust to this. And we were able to publish this paper and doing all, do all the additional experiments right during the yes, pandemic. I know, so amazing. It is possible, and uh, the lab is moving forward. There, w there, there were some delays, but um, I, I think all the supplies are coming in pretty much on time. Now we're having some problems with shortage of certain things, but um, I, I think all the uh, um, everything is working fine. And um, emotionally, emotionally, probably there is more challenge than. Um, in the lab, actually, so. Yeah, I mean, I think that the big conferences where scientists uh, historically got together um, and shared ideas, that's changing, it has changed. Yeah. So that's probably, I guess, one of the biggest alterations, yeah. right? Definitely, and I, I cannot get used to the um, online format of conferences. For me, it was very difficult to like listen to the talks without seeing a person, without um, like all the videos are not projecting well on Zoom. So it's it's dif different uh, and difficult. <laughs> yeah, that's I think I've heard that a few times. It's hard to just say, "Hey, can we just go get a coffee and select one box?" And even though they have the breakout rooms, so. It is, that's a challenge and hopefully we'll um, move through these challenges and uh, get to the other side. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our, our listeners, Adina? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, for about the paper, I just wanted to uh, say that um, our paper has really many cool techniques uh, that um, could be helpful for the field. And uh, due to the space limit, um, we were limited by 7,000 words and uh, we had to cram a lot of information in it. So uh, there, it might be lacking some experimental details. So if uh, readers um, encounter some difficulties understanding the approach or technique, um, I just want to say that I'm very open. So please feel free to contact me and I will be happy to answer any questions or help um, with um, any concerns, yeah. I love that attitude. And we also have on the Sugar Science, we've just established a forum where people can, um, um, you know, reach out for tech help and others can weigh in. So that's, um, that's just started up. So if anyone is interested in that, they can happily, or we're happy to have them uh, jump on. And I think you're a member now, so maybe you would see that and you could answer. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And this is a fascinating paper. I think everybody should read it. And best of luck. We'll look forward to uh, what's, uh, what's next for you. Thank you very much, Monica.